Ladies and gentlemen, people of all gender expressions, thank you for checking out the North Bank Media Podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Strevens. Joining me on the show this afternoon by way of Zoom from Calgary was actor, filmmaker, film set worker, Jin Fedotov. Uh, Jin is a very interesting dude. Uh, we met a number of years ago. He acted in a film that I produced and shot called Give and Take, which is nearly finished. So you'll be able to see Jin as I saw him through the lens all those years ago uh, when that movie comes out. Uh, we've crossed paths on a few other things, uh, you know, always kind of on each other's radar. And we finally made time to sit down and talk. Uh, talked about the craft of acting, filmmaking, uh, a little bit about his personal history, having been born in the Ukraine and making his way to Canada by way of Mexico and the United States. So he's a, he's a well-traveled, uh, hardworking kind of guy. Uh, you know, he really had some good insight about acting uh, as a craft and uh, the sort of the multidimensional characteristics to it. Um, and, and just some sort of, I mean, just a very personal take on, on what his craft is and, and sort of also about how he's pivoted uh, within the industry during the pandemic to, uh, to stay working on sets. So uh, this was a great one. I really enjoyed it. Um, he's got two short films that are coming out uh, shortly. I'm not, I can't link to those just yet, but when they do come out, I'll make sure to let you know. Uh, there's more to be said with Jin for sure. Uh, he, like I said, he's in give and take. So we're going to talk directly about that. Um you know, just, just a guy who's, who's in, who lives and breathes, uh, the cinema. And that's, uh, the kind of guest that this show loves to have, uh, all the better if he's got an interesting origin story, which he does. So please enjoy this conversation with the well-traveled and hardworking Jin Fedotov. Hey, Jin, you said that um, you would do this podcast before your shit hits the fan, so talk to me about what is hitting the fan for you here. Um, well, COVID had me shift certain priorities, and I quit my regular nine to whenever I would finish my job job, mm. and I became an independent freelancer with a lot of things. That includes some stuff related to movies right and also some stuff related to health and safety and COVID compliance so there's a couple of events that are happening this week mm. that i'm doing health and safety for which have a very regular schedule but then um next week and the week uh after that i'm starting to be a COVID compliance officer in a couple of uh, movies okay and you know how shooting schedules are weird i don't know what time i'll have available when mm-hmm so I thought, let's get this done if you have the time and I have the time. So that was my priority to have a conversation with you, which I've been looking forward to for quite a while now. Hey, I appreciate that, man. That's I, yeah, because I noticed you, you you like some of the posts on Instagram and you've been you've been you know, you knew the podcast was going on. So I was like, well, we got to get Jin on there. I mean, you and I have known each other for a couple of years now, I think. Yeah, pro- probably. I'm not sure. Did we meet? Before or after um, give and take, I think. I mean, was, I think we, we went. Be- we met before briefly, maybe, but I'm not sure where. But give and take was kind of our first real thing together. I think so. Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, you'll be happy to know that that film is just about done, and people will actually get to see it. 
I'm excited, but I'm also somewhat scared. Oh, me too. It's uh, a lot of... When I had a conversation about the particular role, I uh, was told that it was <laughs> inspired quite a lot on another film. Right. And the character I was playing was inspired on a performance by Robert Goddamn De Niro, man. <laughs> yeah. So, a bit of a heavy uh, when, Yeah. And I tried to approach the character in a slightly as an homage, so capture some of his particular mm -hmm. mannerisms and the way he said a certain uh, thing. Mm -hmm. I won't reveal what it is, but it had to do with an egg. Right. But everything else I tried to do, okay, don't do it like this. Don't do it like this. Because once you see a Robert in your performance, you're like, oh, he did it that way. Uh, how do I do it then? <laughs> <laughs> how can I trump it? How can I make it mine? Uh, knowing that the character is so... Uh, so much influenced by the performance of one of you know your most admired actors it's crazy so i'm nervous i'm nervous to see what that turns out to be no that's fair man and the film in question i believe is called angel heart and de niro yeah de niro plays well the devil essentially but without giving too too much away about give and take i, I would say your performance I, I really think you nailed it man you you brought this kind of cold steely a little bit less emotionally charged, more just like cold and calculating, I felt. Yeah, I, I think I went for that because um, I felt everybody else was so... They had loud, emotional, powerful moments. Mm. And I didn't want to add to that. I actually wanted to be a little bit of a contrast mm. to allow the other characters, uh, you know, the, the real protagonists of the film to shine through and make their emotions even more poignant, more flavorful hmm. in contrast to somebody who is more calculated. And the other characters were more emotionally charged also because they didn't know what's going to happen. <laughs> they had stuff to react to. I feel my character was in so much control and could predict what would happen. What, where, where would the emotional charge come from? Right. 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 That's cool. You sort of, not that you lay down, but you sort of open the doors for the other performers to shine by contrast, I guess, or to, to be to act out to be a motive uh, by contrast to you. And to be honest, that's the main job of a supporting character. Mm. Absolutely, absolutely. And you make a good point too. Is like the whole film is a roller coaster, and everybody. I mean, we kind of break from reality, and then here's this guy who's seemingly just doing his day job, uh, working on sort of <laughs> buying and selling souls. Well, and to be honest, the subject matter was great. The, the tale of Faust is mm -hmm. old as man himself or itself, I guess. And to me, it, it was a very interesting experience, especially because just like my character, I'm fairly detached from the people that I had the opportunity to have a scene with. Mm -hmm. And that distance, that coldness was uh, great to put it in the character. Mm -hmm. To uh, and, and again, that works perfect. That's why I admire movies where there is, let's say, um, a character that's interacting a lot with other characters, and you can see, mm -hmm. did the actors have the opportunity to build a relationship? Or did they stay apart? And I, I actually uh, enjoyed the fact that I came into Edmonton, performed and left, mm -hmm. instead of creating a bond that you would usually have with cast and crew 
that would allow uh you know to create a better relationship and this character definitely was completely outside of the group of everybody and i enjoyed that i enjoyed bringing that to the character and doing it uh right because otherwise once you have a relationship that's hard to find too <laughs> for sure it, it's gonna come out i really i find that fascinating i also remember a night on that set where we were shooting the scene uh in the hotel restaurant and we had the we had the spot picked and you came up to me and said, I, "I don't know, brother. I don't think that I don't think that the devil would eat dinner uh, in this room. I think he'd be out in the open with everybody else." Do you remember that? Uh oh. I totally do, and I'm super appreciative of that scene. And um, the way I imagined the devil is, um, like in society, why would it? be a hidden creature right mm -hmm. and you told me you know it's going to be in a, what's the point of a king if there is no kingdom <laughs> and so having the opportunity to shift that scene to having it in the open bring one of the chairs from the lobby mm -hmm. to make his chair very different than everybody else's mm -hmm. give him a table where he can indeed see all of the damned so to speak <laughs> and be in control and by the way the other cool thing that you guys allowed me to do, which I wouldn't usually do as an actor, is take over the scene in terms of before we started filming. So I started mingling with all of the background performers. Uh, I played a little bit with the, um, I think they were hardballed or just prepared um, hearts, which I thought, okay, we have these props, we got to eat these things. So I tried it and encouraged everybody else to try it. I really felt that you guys let me own that space. Mm. And that was instrumental to my performance because I felt like the king of that place. And uh, without obviously spoiling much, it needed to be that way because this guy is in total control of everything that's happening, uh, even though the audience might not be aware of that. But I feel this character is 100% in control and writes the story of what and how things will happen. Hmm. And yeah, so it was beautiful. Um, I, I wish I had uh, more eggs to eat. <laughs> That's all. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. Or you, you got your protein that night with the cow heart and the and the hard boiled eggs. Yeah, and by the way, uh, whoever is shying away from trying the cow heart, <laughs> I wasn't the only one who liked it. I think most people liked it quite a lot. Oh, there you go. Well, it, it we definitely got the cow heart close up and we kept it, so it's uh, people will get a chance to see that. It's uh, it looked disgusting, but I suppose it's just pretty beefy, huh? Not not too bad yeah. tasting. <laughs> I grew up eating weird stuff like livers and kidneys, so okay. for me, a heart, yeah, why not? It's it's protein, man. Absolutely. Do you think? That, so obviously, you know, people say acting, performing, whatever. There's a certain there's a certain thing where you're you're creating, you're you're doing things that aren't really real. You're 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 playing, you're portraying. But what you're saying to me about being able to uh, feel like you were in control of this scene, feel like you were the king of this place, is there a certain degree in your acting where it is really real? You know what I mean? Like there's you are in some sense you are in control. You are the king. Uh, you know what I mean? It's not a complete detachment from reality. Absolutely, and to be honest. My approach to acting is 
not an orthodox. Many actors do it. So what I do is I keep a lot of my personal life hidden. Mm. And uh, I mean, not only because that's how most people do it, but uh, my thoughts, my emotions, they're mostly hidden and I share them with very few people. And when I have a character, uh, especially a character that has dialogue, and sometimes even when, when the character doesn't, I put those emotions, those hidden thoughts onto the character. Hmm. So the moment I start dreaming as the character and the character's thoughts and subconscious merges with mine, I feel the character is ready to be on screen. And I hope I have the time to prepare the character to that degree. So for me, every moment is real. That being said, uh, there's a lot of stuff that is completely outside of my control. And as a filmmaker, you know, you got to make magic happen within a particular frame. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of things in play. Not only I am on scene, but probably there's other actors, there's sound people, camera people, everybody in the art department, everybody's trying to make this magic trick happen. <laughs> and how do you stay in that magic space in that frame mentally is uh, something that actors do and they just, you know, tune things out. The other thing I learned as an actor actually is uh, you become three people. When somebody says, uh, you know, rolling action, mm. you become three people. You become the character and you stay as the character, but you also have to be a judge of your own performance. So think a little bit outside of yourself. Mm. And I learned that technique actually from studying psychology. When you're having a counseling session with somebody, you have to look at things from a third person view almost. Mm. And then the third person is you need to be aware of what everybody else is doing, where your frame ends, where your mm. um, sound works better or worse. So if you have, let's say, a lav mic, you need to be careful of not touching that particular part. Mm what you're giving to your scene partner or what they're giving to you in order to play off each other. And you have to be the performer, the, um, I guess, the observer, and also the technical aware person. And uh, it's very challenging. I mean, acting is indeed, if you do it the way I do, it's exhausting, mm -hmm. but so rewarding. And again, without people that understand that process and also are passionate about film, that is completely thrown into a basket and forgotten about. And I'm sp specifically talking about schedules that are like, shoot, 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 one tick, one tick, one tick, one tick, let's go. Mm. That is, is something I found very difficult to work with because it doesn't allow me to be all of those three people at that time. Right. Oh, that's very interesting. So you're saying it takes a little bit of time to get into that sort of three-headed mode? Yeah, and you need to know where, where, who you're working with, what their style is, mm. what they're doing, take enough time to work the scene with your partner, take enough time to find a spot in your mind to be the observer and definitely have the technical knowledge about who is doing what on set mm. and how you fit within those parameters to ensure that I'm not uh, intruding in anybody's space, but also how I can utilize their skills to my performance. So even when, you know, you're a fantastic person behind the camera, I will probably ask you, okay, we're shooting this. Where does my frame end? Can I move? What, mm -hmm. How shallow is your shot? Mm -hmm. Where is the light? Um, can I move here? Like I need to know those technical details. So my performance is contained within those parameters because there's no point in, you know, 
giving a surprise performance where you're super loud if it's gonna break the audio levels <laughs> or if I walk out of frame, sure. it's not gonna work out, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. So you need those things, you need time and working with particular amount of uh, you know passing crew to get in the groove of being able to know how to utilize people's expertise and deliver a better performance. Mm. That's fascinating. And the average person watching a film might not think about that. They just think, oh, they just, you know, the camera frames the actor and the actor just says their lines and they maybe they put a dramatic pause in there or whatever. But no, you're very much, uh, you do have to touch almost on every department as an actor to be effective. Absolutely. And that's one of the reasons why I enjoy doing stuff on set when I'm not acting. And uh, lately I've been able to become a little bit more involved with the crew to understand what grips, gaffers, PAs, craft people, mm. uh, directors of photography, sound engineers, sound recordists, assistant directors, what they do, how they do it, why they do those things, mm. and understand how those practices apply to when an actor is ready to shoot a scene and everything else that happens before and after that to make that magic happen on the frame. Hmm. So when you're when you're talking about this place that you get to where you're essentially three three points of view or whatever you want to say, are there times when you when you know you're there and you're then you're just unconsciously flowing or are you always conscious of those three like I think about when I'm when I'm shooting live sports or I'm shooting documentary and I'm just in the zone flowing and it's all happening through me and I'm unconsciously capturing. Are you do you get to a place where you're unconsciously just being those three things or are you always is there almost like a fourth head where it's managing those three points of view? To be honest, there were a few times in my earlier years of acting where I just let it go and I was just in the moment. Mm. And in fact, one of the reasons why I don't do theater anymore, and I used to at the very beginning, is because myself got completely detached from me <laughs> and I was just in the moment as the character. And that, unfortunately, is not the best practice on a film set. And it also becomes sometimes very conflictive uh, outside of the shooting scenario because I want to give my best performance, mm. but my best performance might not be the best thing for the moment, especially for the scene partner you're with. Mm. And my job, especially as a supporting actor, is to ensure that my performance doesn't take over. It complements the story. It allows the the protagonist, the lead, to shine through. And I'm just there delivering particular either informational or emotional beats mm. to make the story uh, more complete. So I feel, yes, I had those moments where I just let go and I'm just acting, but those are very far and few because I feel... It is my job as an actor, uh, not mm. as a hobby as an actor, but my job as an actor mm. to be aware of those things and manage those things uh, before, during, and after the performance, for sure. That's interesting. Now, do you do you relish the supporting role? Like, have you have you played lead? Surely you've been lead in something, but do you do you get more of a kick, or do you feel better used and able to do all those things as a supporting role, supporting player? The level of responsibility is very different. I've been uh, given the amazing opportunity to be lead in a couple of short films. Mm. And I was hoping to have a, a lead feature film with a group of fantastic filmmakers that unfortunately 
due to life circumstances, had to put a huge pause on their filmmaker career. I hope they come back. But to condense and simmer down, mm. I really enjoy being an actor altogether. Mm-hmm. And it's just knowing where your place is in terms of the story, in terms of the engagement you have with the audience. Mm. If you compare a lead and a supporting actor, right? So I don't mind being a supporting actor. I don't mind being uh, just a you know day player, just being a background performer as well. And I shouldn't say just. I mean, it is right. challenging, demanding, and I enjoy that experience. So uh, I feel once you, the, the closer you are to being a lead, the more level of responsibility you have, and the more you can let go. In terms of okay, I can just concentrate on this one thing and let the experts do their thing. But if you know, I am a little bit of a control freak, and I also, in my heart, I feel that I am a filmmaker. Mm. So I feel that I really want to do that, you know, three hats in one moment kind of actor because I would like the actors I work with as a filmmaker to do that as well if possible. Gotcha. So if I could do a lead role, I, I totally would, and I would be slightly more relaxed, but I still feel I would try to wear those three hats for sure. Hmm. No, I got you. I got you. I think the last thing that we worked on together was uh, back in April in Cold Lake on that short film called Rebar. And I think yeah. I think that was the most I'd ever seen. I think that was almost the most leash I'd ever seen a director give you, or uh, though I'd see that was like the most explosive sort of emotive you're yelling and screaming and running around in that movie and then you're getting beat up like was that a was that a welcome uh way to be for you or was that you know how how did you feel about that character vlad in rebar what was that like i had a huge amount of leeway in terms of creating that character to give some background the character basically is the product of the soviet union and he uses everything that he learned while being part of the Soviet Union to exploit in this new free world without the control of the government. And so I use my personal background. I was born in the Ukraine. I'm a Soviet child, so to speak. I identify as somebody who was born in the USSR and have some of the quirks that come with that. (laughs) And when the director and the protagonist, uh, Patty, approached me uh, about that particular role, I knew exactly what they were looking for, and I was able to tailor some of my personal experiences and some of those lines to what they were looking for. Mm-hmm. And actually, I had a chance to rewrite a couple of lines of dialogue. Um, I have this terrible habit, and I know I shouldn't, where I read lines and I have a better idea of, okay, I, I really think if we change this phrasing or the other of these things or add a, this tiny bit, it would be more meaningful, better, and so I always approach uh, directors uh, and scriptwriters about that before we start shooting. And of course, of course, I did on Rebar. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the stuff I wanted in there was kept. So that's, that's an amazing thing. The other thing is, yes, I had a very loud performance. And it was, I felt that character, if he was on a very contained life before, mm-hmm. now he is just this i guess completely freed beast that can do anything because he feels there's no right and wrong there is just what's right in the moment and everything else matters not (laughs) the other thing of being beaten up uh man i i felt so honored to be 
in that position because for the protagonist, for, for Patty, for mm -hmm. Rebar, it was a very personal moment. She was using the character to let some of her personal things go. And I'm, I'm not going to break down what's happening, but there's a particular moment when I let go a tiny bit of my safety to ensure that Patty had this emotional experience where she would be able to perform at her fullest without having to, having to worry about what's going to happen to Jin, hmm. right? And I'm super glad that nobody got hurt. But I also knew that the director, the assistant director, the crew, if they noticed something was off, they would say something. So mm. I felt in safe hands and that's what allowed me to just, you know, let things happen and see where we go. And if we need to stop, we do. But if we don't need to stop, just let it happen. Hmm. Right, right. I think I, yeah, again, we don't want to say too much about this because they're still working on the edit and everything. But I did see that. I did see there was, and let's, I guess that's like the ultimate sacrifice as the as the supporting role is like you you literally in real life were willing to sacrifice a little bit of comfort and 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 not that it was unsafe, but that you opened the door for like something big could happen here, and because we need this lead character to have this huge cathartic moment and 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 deal with you as the as the villain. What I, another thing too? What occurred to me on that set was like. And I don't mean this in an insulting way, but Chris, he loved to give the actors and and his cinematographer too a lot of freedom just to do things as they felt necessary without much, you know, without being too much of a control freak himself. Did you find working with Chris was uh, was good? It was a good experience for you as an actor. It was definitely. I am, to be honest, not very used to people giving me directions, mm. which is a bit frustrating, because as an actor, I want to know. Does my performance fit within the vision of the director? Hmm. But I know the director is so busy with so many other things. And a lot of directors are actually more, mostly concerned about the technical aspect. Was this captured the way I want to? Not was this performance the best? So Chris, yeah, he, he was great to work with. I know that he has an amazing uh, skill set on the technical side. But the emotional, the acting component, I think he basically um, allowed Patty, myself, and a few of the other actors to just go at it and see what we had. Mm. And that was amazing. Um, I wish directors had the time to mm. rehearse scenes more. That is my only thing that in pretty much every short or feature that I've been on, there is so little time to rehearse with the director mm. to show some of those emotional moments. But I understand directors want to also capture that first, second, third time that the characters are interacting in this way. And that might be just wasted in an unrecorded rehearsal. You know what I mean? <laughs> so I, I get why directors don't do it, but I wish there was more of that, especially for blocking, right. for big emotional scenes, for uh, places that really should be rehearsed with mind of this is the space we're going to be in. Let's just put some tape on the ground and say, this is the space you're going to play within. So you're going to be like, like the entire rehearsal of how it would be on set, but not being on set. So we're not burning people's time mm. and we're taking advantage to craft something that is closer to the director's vision, but also allow opportunities for discoveries because as an actor, I find Take number three is roughly where it starts getting juicy. Mm. 
by take number five, people are already moving to the next scene, next take. <laughs> and that is like, hey, guys, but I have another 20 amazing takes here that I would love <laughs> to explore. Why are we just stopping when we just started, right? And without rehearsals, it's very difficult to discover those moments that you're like, oh, okay, director, did you like this? Great. Scene partner, did you like this? Great. Okay, let's do this on set then. Mm. So, uh, yeah, rehearsal time, so needed, man. No, that's interesting. I, I always wondered, I almost wondered on that set if maybe you guys had rehearsed because it seemed like there, was, there wasn't there was a ton of like back and forth uh, on the day of, but I guess you're saying that it it's not the case that you really get that. Do you, was that the case then? There was no rehearsals really and, and generally there's not rehearsals? There were just discussions verbally, mm. which is not enough. Um, and we had very little rehearsal. And, and to be honest, that's most of the time on set. Mm -hmm. That's what happens. You get there and you talk about block blocking a little bit. Maybe you have one or two uh, runs at rehearsal and then the director steps out and does other stuff. And if you have a generous scene partner and there's enough time and place to do this, you rehearse with your scene partner, but you run lines. You don't do things in the blocking. Because, I mean, imagine doing a fight scene and rehearsing it before you actually have to do it. You need to ensure you are, you, you are safe, mm -hmm. that you know what you're doing. You need to know how the camera is going to capture it. So I hope that in those rehearsals, especially when there is a lot of movement, somebody from the camera department is going to be there and you're going to say, all right, uh, guys, I love what you're doing, but you need to contain your scene here, right? Mm. I would love somebody from the lightning department to have an idea of how this is going to be lit based on the space right um but when you're pulling a crew from different places like cold lake didn't have all of the crew most people came from edmonton calgary other places um yeah that kind of rehearsal would be very complicated right <laughs> <laughs> but when there's opportunity for a rehearsal where you have the crew just not being in the space not rolling just going through proper blocking running the scene, trying to discover emotional moments where it can be just director and AD or director and uh, uh, director of photography and director and the performers, man, that, and by the way, the, in, in the short I did, uh, Heretic, that's the thing I allowed an entire day to get together and just rehearse scenes because me as the director, I needed to discover things that I didn't want to explore on the day on set mm. because the real crux of Movie making happens once you torch your money. Once you set your dollar on fire, <laughs> um, you, you got a film. You don't have time to rehearse. Right. Now, I, I always found that strange as I got more into production was seeing how like there isn't always, there is no big lead up. There is no, there is no uh, margins really. It's just like on the 17th of August at 8.30 in the morning, we're filming this scene. Whatever we get, that's the scene. It's just... It's a business like any other, but you're right. Once the once the dollar is burning, it's it's on, and it's. I mean, I guess at the end of the day, because it's about money, really, it's a business for the most part. That kind of dictates the craft. Absolutely, but hey, I have done so much stuff uh, voluntarily. I guess for what they call exposure. Mm. Um, if it's going to create a better scene, I'm going to donate my time. Please take my time. Mm. Help me develop a better performance. Sure. Help me tell your story better. Mm. So absolutely, I'm going to donate some time if that's a possibility. Unfortunately, now that I've joined the union, mm. I don't feel that is something that's 
easily done. Mm. But I also feel if it's something where I'm, again, not getting paid for, or I can opt not to get paid for it for rehearsal time, I would take that any time of the day, man. Cool, cool. Well, and I should say too, when we were in Cold Lake uh, working on Rebar, I I think there was a couple of days there where you weren't on on screen, you weren't on camera, and I saw you moving water around. I saw we hung out in the hotel a little bit. We said hello in the hallway. Like you were there those five days, and I got a sense of just a real love of the whole uh, experience of making movies out of you. You know what I mean? Like I think you're you're there for the whole thing. Absolutely, because I I love it. It's the place on earth that regardless of how sometimes miserable it can be with snow, rain, heat, whatever, Mm. I am happy on the set. And by the way, if the worst thing that you can do um, to somebody who has idle hands like myself is, well, sit and wait. Cool. (laughs) Uh, How long? No idea when we need you. All right, great. In the meantime, I see people working their butts off, there's no way I'm going to sit and, and, and wait. <laughs> I'm going to try to help without obviously being in people's way. And that's actually one of the reasons why I uh, do stuff um, now, not as an actor, but try to help on set. I had an opportunity to be a COVID compliance officer and a little bit of craft uh, crew. But then I see a lot of the set PAs and grips, mm. moving lights, building stuff. And I'm like, hey, can I help? Sure. So I, I, I enjoy, and to be honest, that's a gold mine as an actor to understand uh, who does what on set. It's one of the coolest learning experiences an actor can have aside from actually acting. No, that's, that's interesting. And I, I totally hear what you're saying about when I, when I personally get a chance to be on set, it's like a 12, 14, 16 hour a day, but especially, you know, in grip or camera departments, there's no downtime except for lunch. And I find like you at lunch, I'm anxious to, to just get working again. And it's, you kind of can put your life on hold a little bit. And you just, you, you go fully 100% into this endeavor, this, this team game that you're essentially playing. And it's a performance of sorts because this is something that you're going to build and then take away. And it's going to last just for, you know, a few hours. Mm-hmm. And some of it is going to be captured on camera and most of it won't make it to the final edit. <laughs> And the huge level of responsibility with the poor editors, the poor post-production people that actually have to make sacrifices and say, yeah, they spend so much time, so much effort, but this scene, this take simply doesn't work. So I have to cut it out. Hmm. Leave stuff on the cutting floor. Oh my God. That's (laughs) such a responsibility, man. Yeah, that's a tough one. And I suppose that's why I've heard it said that quite often the director probably should at least work with an editor. You never really want to be stuck editing your own your own movie in some ways. You need that that sober second thought or that voice, you know? Absolutely. The funny thing, and one of the directors I admire the most is Alfred Hitchcock. And it is a rumor. I've, I've been trying to find something written somewhere in a book or online, but the rumor is out of his extensive movie career, mm-hmm. he only caught altogether... 24 minutes of footage that was not used. Wow. Altogether. That's insane. Of course, there's cost to film back in the day when actual physical film was used. Wow. But, I mean, in the digital era, everybody goes crazy. I mean, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> why not? But also, poor editor that has to, you know, review all of the information and make the decision as to what to keep and what not. Oh, my God. 
he that's insane that he only shot 24 minutes of footage that didn't get like like the takes that they shot were the takes they used yeah mostly wow i know that's pretty incredible i wonder if it that's is. true we'll, we'll have to i, I wonder too that's the issue i haven't been able to find confirmation i remember and the, the thing is i heard it on somebody talking on youtube that used to work with somebody who used to work with him okay so it's like third person hearsay right that's why i'm calling it a rumor not a fact right no fair enough but you're yeah i suppose too the cost of film back in the day it was probably <laughs> it wasn't they weren't just rolling on whatever it was like if we have it now we'll we'll go but <laughs> no wasted film back in the day i Absolutely. imagine um jen heretic was really good man i gotta tell you i'm not i don't want to overstate this i was impressed and I, I thought it was a really like a beautiful piece of work thank you i uh i wish i could claim credit for the way it turned out but the only thing i can claim uh i guess some ownership is the nightmare that inspired this entire thing and the rest it was like any other film uh endeavor mostly a team effort mm -hmm. except for a couple of performances that are just you know they really made the film but thank you for watching i heretic was a very personal journey that mm. i didn't expect for it to be it's my second short film and i tried to do everything that they didn't do in my first short okay and so the 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 basic idea behind heretic is that i wanted to create a short film adaptation of dante's inferno and <laughs> tiny bit of story of the relationship between Dante's Inferno and my development as a storyteller. I really enjoyed this story and I felt, okay, I, I've read so many translations. Dante's Inferno is the pivotal um, work of literature that allowed the common folk to understand what's being said because it was written in Italian, not Latin. Hmm. And it was pivotal to people just starting to, you know, pick up and read books, not for religious purposes. So to condense all of that, I literally used verses, translated verses from the comedy, and it wasn't working. Okay. I Anybody who I gave it to, they're like, I have no idea what's happening. <laughs> so I had to really simmer it down. And there's only one line that I left in the entire uh, short of 14 minutes. That is literally just a translation of what was said in Inferno. But I worked in a toxic environment, in an office environment for many years. And I, I had nightmares of this place. And I mean, people that used the lifestyle of, you know, working Monday to Friday, but not allowing the workplace to leave their, their minds, their wow. space, their souls. Hmm. I wanted to capture that. I wanted to capture a place that was disorganized and where information or lack thereof really had a big impact and tell a story that's personal mm. and eventually it evolved into what you've seen on screen which i took inspiration from some of hitchcock's shots and some of his techniques mm. to craft it but also every single piece of uh, art decor set piece uh, wardrobe uh, makeup dialogue i had enough time to do that film exactly the way i wanted to and everything has symbolism and meaning personally hmm. the thing is a lot of people that have seen it and read the script they're like i still have no idea what's going on and that's <laughs> perfect for me that's 
Yeah, absolutely. That's that's good then, right? Like you've you've expressed something so personal that it it, it doesn't quite make sense to anybody else. The thing is, as a listen, anybody doing a short film, they have. I feel it's very binary. Hmm. You can either tell a story, or you can tell, or you can provide an experience. And I felt my duty as a very new director, as a very new storyteller in terms of creating something, mm-hmm. I felt it was important for me to provide an experience rather than tell a story that makes sense. Right, right. And you you do feel that film a lot more than you maybe intellectually understand it. But yeah, there was no, there was no, you know, like there was no shot out of place. There was no, uh, like color correction was great. Sound design was like beautiful. It, uh, uh, it was simple in some ways, but it was also clearly quite a quite a painstaking effort i think to put that together and that's where everybody else in the team really deserves the accolades not myself because mm-hmm. um i i did a rough edit and then i gave it gave it to the editor jared eves and he just made it so much better mm-hmm. and then amir javid took the monumental task of creating a soundtrack that was uh telling as much of the story as the visuals and he really polished a lot of the sound Mm -hmm. which for me was super important because i wanted this non-stop uh, you know those neon lights the the buzzing overhead lights that was important for me they were part of the film as much as the dialogue really Mm -hmm. and the score accentuates the emotions and at the end of the day performances were great the reason why this film was super challenging for me is that it was done like the first day of shooting mm-hmm. was, and it's a three-day shoot altogether. The first day of shooting was done on January third of twenty eighteen. Oh wow! And then the second day of shooting didn't happen till the end of twenty nineteen. Okay, interesting. I know, and I and I what I didn't know what I was gonna do with it. I planned this short for a long time. I had everything set in place. I had the the space i had people's time everything was booked and then at the end of the year i got a very bad call from my parents and i was gonna have to leave canada uh, indefinitely i didn't know for how long Hmm. and i was leaving on the sixth so three days before i left canada i had to decide do i shoot the first day of this thing (laughs) or do i concentrate on my family situation and I decided to do shooting by letting my emotions flow through that first day. And we had, we started early at eight in the morning and we finished at four in the morning. Wow. And everybody was so amazing and so understanding. And I let everybody know, hey guys, like I, this is not me, but I have to shoot all of this today because I don't know if I will be able to shoot this any other time. And everybody was so amazing. We staggered people properly. We, we had call times to reflect people's, uh, you know, when we will definitely need them on set. And it happened. When hmm. year, literally, I, <laughs> almost two years later, when we shot the rest of it, coming back to it was just so cathartic and so weird to get into that mind space again. Hmm. And... People just were so incredible to work with. Uh, Chingiz Javeri, the main protagonist, is, you know, I admire the guy and I've considered him my mentor. 
Hmm. Yvonne Chapman uh, was amazing. She was on the first day of shooting and I could never in my wildest dreams um, believe that she actually said, yeah, I'll, I'll do it. Chris Schuler, Brent uh, McIntosh was amazing. And TJ, who you see just for a couple of brief time, his physical presence was just amazing. The entire team was, they, they really deserve all of the praises. I was just there to witness that magic happen, really. <laughs> That's incredible, man. I, I can only imagine after, like you say, two years to go, okay, now it's time for day two. And then I'm sure in some ways you're right back in the, in the mind space of where you were on day one and the emotional turmoil. But I think, man, I was thinking a lot about, we shot a film last summer called Darker Than Night and uh, all night shoots, you know, skeleton crew, not a huge budget. And there were days when I literally said, I am suffering from my art. And I, I realize how pretentious that sounds, but I think there's a certain amount of suffering that has to go into making anything personal. Not only that, but the experience altogether. Uh, I feel the final product is so different than what you envision, hmm. that what you have to cherish is that experience it will have happy moments. It, it will have challenges. Mm. And that is what matters because I didn't know if I was going to do anything with that first day, right? I was leaving Canada. I didn't know if I was going to finish it. But for me to have that experience was for me the heretic. I, I needed to have it to have the exorcism of the ideas and the nightmares out of my head mm. and place them in, in some forgotten memory card and just know that it's out there somewhere in some ethereal space. Right. And that entire day, it was uh, a blessing because it prepared me for the year that followed. So, hmm. Well, and I don't wonder if that's kind of maybe a part of what's wrong uh, in the world today in some ways where people are full of ideas, you know, that are doing them harm in some ways, but they're they're sort of identifying with those ideas of being themselves when it's like, if you could just express those ideas and see them as ideas separate from yourself, you might, you might save yourself some pain or you might heal yourself a little bit, you know? I wish that was the case. I used to write a lot of poetry and I'm super prolific when I'm not happy, <laughs> but then I don't write when I have happy things to write about. I just live uh, in terms of, as an actor, I'm bound by other people's stories most of the time. And so I have to get into mind spaces that are a bit my own, but in the context of somebody else's story. When you are a director, writer, director, uh, you have the ability to tell the stories the way you want to without... And again, I took the challenge of not wanting to tell a story that makes sense, but wanted to present a situation in a an experience rather than telling a story that makes sense. And in and by by the way, it's in no way an experimental film. I think if you really want to dissect the linear story that's happening there, you could. Mm -hmm. But the experience there, I wish people allowed themselves to have an experiential outlet for their emotions. And not everybody does. When you look at a passionate anybody, mm -hmm. a singer, uh, a passionate artist specifically, they have found a medium through which to express things that it's either difficult, challenging, or simply impossible to express by talking with somebody. Mm -hmm. And not everybody has that. In fact, I have lost that because from acting, I used to do that. Now that I, I'm doing less acting, unfortunately, I don't have that expression medium 
that allowed me to, I guess, exercise my demons, so to speak, even though I am a fairly happy uh, person. But even if I wasn't, I haven't found a medium deeper than acting that, mm. or creating films that would allow me to exteriorize whatever stuff is making me sad inside. Mm-hmm. Well, I, man, it could be that there is no medium better than film to do that thing. If you, if you think about it, I mean, you're in some sense, you're, I mean, you just look at how many departments work on a film. It's like so many elements of what reality is are recreated, you know, on a film set in a, in a movie. I, I wonder if, I mean, it's, it's a pretty young art form. It's a hundred and some years old. I just wonder if maybe there's something essentially human about, about movie making. Well, definitely. And, but I feel any performing art, even if somebody's singing in the shower and that's still a performance, that's a matter if somebody's there to hear it. Um, it, it has that primal thing where your inside it's translated into something, into mm. an action, into sound, into a movement. Like I feel those cathartic emotional experiences, the exterioration of the inside to the outside happens. I actually feel in a more primal way, if you're dancing or singing or, uh, you know, just spoken word, even the magic of what happens on frame. There's so many people involved that circling back to the first thing we're talking about of wearing the three hats, Mm -hmm. perhaps it's not the best approach to having that exteriorization of a feeling of, of our thought, but it is what needs to happen in order for doing your job as an actor. If I was doing my, just acting, forgetting that it's actually a job and I have a responsibility to people that I'm working with, Mm. then it would be more of a cathartic experiential feeling that I actually feel is lost even more in theater. Because in theater, things are so rehearsed, Mm. they're so processed, they're so expected, uh, that unless there is some improvisation, you know exactly what's happening, who's doing what, and I feel that that is the main difference between theater and film altogether is that film has a good balance of there's a magic trick. A lot of people are involved and it doesn't matter if you do well or not, somebody will capture something that's usable, which might or might not end up in the final cut and people might see it or not in theater. You're the actor. Of course, there's light engineers and sound engineers and wardrobe and, you know, everything that makes the moment, but audiences' eyes are on you. Mm. They're listening to you. They're looking at your body movements. And at that moment, I feel there's zero ability to express what's inside. And you are so trained, rehearsed, that it's more of a responsibility to everybody around you to do exactly how it was rehearsed. Mm. Um, to honor the people's time as well. Mm. right? Because the audience is there and they're giving you your time. In a movie... In, in, a, in a video format, people can pause, they can stop watching, they can do whatever. In theater, they're there in their seat for two hours. <laughs> you're, you're having the responsibility of uh, uh, babysitting people's minds and emotions for two hours of a play. That's a huge responsibility. <laughs> Absolutely is. Now, theater sort of strikes me as being really, really expressive, right? Because you got to act for the guy in the back of the house, whereas film... Well, you tell me you can be pretty you can be pretty damn subtle because we're gonna we're gonna put that eighty five millimeter lens on and we're gonna get a nice close up to see exactly what we want and then we'll bump out to the wide to see the space. 
Absolutely. Uh, the funny thing, though, is the I think expressive and loud is a bit uh, misconstrued. You can be very expressive. You can be completely unexpressive and still be loud. Mm. And you can be very expressive, but quiet. It really depends on the context, the moment, the who is doing the performance. And yes, of course, as a theater actor, you have to make sure that the person behind, like in the last row, hears you and sees what's happening. But I feel you can still do things subtle. I was, I'm, I'm rewatching Breaking Bad for like the fourth time, and the more I'm looking at things, the there is you need that balance of some very subtle. I can barely see your eyebrows move, but I get this chill inside. I get a lot of feelings, and the balance with the explosive, crazy moments of rage and crying and ecstatic, explosive, cool things happening to make both of those things work. If it's always quiet or if it's always super expressive, neither of those things work. They work best when they're paired in the contrast. No, that's a great point. You do need you do need an, a little bit of both, both flavors. Now, do you have any, uh, this COVID compliance thing that you're getting into, that's a, obviously a pretty new department on film sets. Uh, how'd you get into that? And is that even something you're, is that just... Well, tell me, how did you get into it, first of all? Um, to be honest, this is something I, I keep very dear and, and close to my heart. When um, things started closing down, I felt, wow, what's going to happen to the filmmaking industry? How's it going to impact you know, the big drive that we had to get Alberta mm-hmm. rolling and get great film credits and that kind of stuff? Mm-hmm. And I started speaking with my partner, Robin, who is also my partner in crime in terms of movie making. She's the assistant director slash, um, she, she keeps me sane on a set. Anyway, <laughs> so I was talking to her and I said, listen, this is what I would love to do. I would love to start a company that allows movies to continue rolling, but we have to all wear masks, ensure that, you know, do the entire COVID compliance and I had that discussion like in April or May of, you know, when the pandemic just started closing things out. Mm-hmm. And then I was still working my regular nine to five. Eventually I got fired and I was looking for smaller gigs, something independent. And by happenstance, somebody on Facebook was saying, hey, if you're passionate about COVID and you are looking to help on a set, send me a message. So I did and I got in with somebody that, has a company that wants to do health and safety, but also had a department that was dealing with uh, movies, reality shows, whatever, with code compliance. So I actually find that as something very important because not only it keeps people safe and healthy, mm-hmm. but it also keeps cameras rolling. Man. <laughs> so I'm, sure. I'm super passionate about that. And, and I had some training, I had some experience, and I feel it's one of the uh, essential jobs, even though people don't, sometimes feel well at this point everybody's vaccinated what's the issue well guess what the reason why alberta had such a big boom is we were doing so well in terms of numbers Mm. and we had such interesting uh practices on set that people from other places from la from georgia they just didn't have a place to film back there and here it was possible right now that things are happening a little bit more in LA and all of the other film centers in the United States, I feel Alberta had the opportunity to show, hey, 
we do things, we kick, we kick ass, and we have this COVID compliance that keeps everybody safe, regardless of if you're in Canada, if you come from the United States. So it's one of the most important roles on set. Hmm. Do you have any worry that you kind of have to be the policeman or you're, you're getting stuck with a certain amount of power and responsibility that uh, could lead to some conflict? Or like, I guess, or are you finding most people on set are, are, are down to just play by the rules? It's interesting. I was working with a reality show. So not only did we deal with people in, you know, on the set, but also with different contractors that had nothing to do with the filmmaking industry and had some resistance to, hey, you have to wear a mask today. I have to check your temperature. You have to fill out this form that allows me to trace. And if you want some a snack or beverage, I am the one that provides it to you. You kind of grab it yourself. And to have that discussion with people and explain the why, hmm. I think puts people at ease. And I've had very little resistance and definitely no resistance from anybody that was part of our crew or cast because we all are on the same hope. We can continue getting more gigs, have an industry that is booming and have people understand that their safety is primordial to us being able to go to work and create magic moments no doubt no doubt so is this now more of a full-time gig for you or like if if acting opportunities came up are you able to sort of bounce between both these departments or what does that i'm look hoping like? to find a balance yeah man okay something has to pay the bills mm -hmm. but most importantly i'm still on a movie set mm -hmm. if somebody told me tomorrow okay gene i have a gig as a pa yes please put me in hey i need a driver but for a movie set, I'm going to say yes. Hmm. Of course, my primordial focus will always be acting because I feel that is my passion. And not the way that, you know, graphic design is passion for some people. <laughs> but I, I really feel I become 100% alive being an actor. But considering that my ability to be an actor now that I joined the union has diminished a little bit, hmm. I'm used to being on an indie set three, four times a month easily before I joined the union. And now that I joined the union, it's a little bit quieter. So I have to find ways of staying on the movie set. Mm. I'm happy as a COVID compliance officer or PA, but if there's other opportunities, I absolutely will take them because I'm staying close to the action, learning from amazing professionals and implementing everything that I learned once I have the opportunity to be an actor. Hmm. That's awesome. That That's very cool. You're staying in the same ecosystem. And I guess, like you say, you get to bounce around between different positions. It's, it can only help uh, overall. Um, yeah. I guess I'm curious, you say you joined the union. Is that ACTRA? Yes. And so does that mean now that you can only, you can only act on, on union certified sets? Mostly or any agreement from an independent production with the union that would allow to engage union performers. Okay. And so that, that was obviously a leap that you made in the hopes of furthering your career, but now do you feel, or, or had you had enough fun on those no budget indie sets for one lifetime and you're looking to, to kick it up a notch? To be honest, I, I had a very thorough discussion with my um, agent before joining the union because I knew that most of the uh, commercial products, like, I mean, and I mean, like commercial advertisements mm. are shot in a non-union way. Most of the films that I'm used to engage in short films are shot in a non-union way, but I felt 
I've done 10 years of that and I really haven't had the opportunity to be on Union Production, some bigger stuff, except for Hell on Wheels. And I really felt, okay, we're having a big year coming up. I, we already knew that The Last of Us was coming to Calgary. Mm. Um, Joe Pickett was coming up, Guilty Party. And I felt I would have a better opportunity for actor and principal roles if I joined the Union. So, and by the way, I didn't know what the environment is going to be like. Mm -hmm. So I took the leap and I joined. I don't regret it because I've had so many amazing training opportunities as an actor member, almost for no cost, some of them completely for free, mm -hmm. that I would not have access to if I wasn't in the actor. Okay. So that is one of the top things out there. The impact on the amount of work I, I get now is significant though. And I didn't expect that. I just need to adjust a little bit. And I'm not saying it's a good thing or a bad thing. I still need to navigate it for a couple of years to see if I can indeed get my career and get my opportunities in shape as an actual member, because there's so many amazing benefits of being an actual member. I can't enlist them all, but for me, the top one, is definitely the amount of training and the access to professionals you have hmm. that I would never dream to have as an indie actor. Gotcha. So overall, it's it's going to be a good thing for your career. I'm looking forward to saying yes, at least in this, if not this year, the next one, especially with huge productions that are here in Calgary. Mm -hmm. um, there's no way that, you know, the biggest production in Canada it's not going to see a little bit of gin fat atop in it. <laughs> Perfect. Well, I look forward to seeing you. I think I once saw you on a commercial and it was just mind blowing because I didn't expect to see you. I think it was a red arrow commercial. Yeah. People actually caught those one minute of a second. Hell yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. What's, Dude, uh, go ahead. Red arrow was great. That was a great experience, but it was the weirdest experience ever, man. Okay. Go on. Um, I don't usually shoot commercials, but when I do, I usually have a great time. This was before Red Arrow was sold to Southland Transportation. I think they were suffering a little bit. Okay. And my payment for four, maybe five hours of work mm -hmm. was a one-way ticket on Red Arrow. No. Yeah, that was my payment. <laughs> Again, the the beauty of it is not, hey, I would have done it for free. Sure. But the beauty of that payment is that the hook is that you pay the return ticket. <laughs> <laughs> they, they bought themselves a customer is what it sounds like. Right? Genius. Um, it was weird. We drove on the bus from Calgary almost to Edmonton and then the, back. <laughs> and throughout that entire you know, almost five hours of a journey. We just filmed that commercial. I enjoyed filming a Casino Calgary commercial. Okay. That was beautiful. I worked with people I, I love to work with. And I really knew. And by the way, it was an Edmonton team that shot it. Uh, Guerrilla Motion Pictures. Okay. I did see that. That actually looked great, didn't it? And it was so much fun. Um, I got to interact with people I don't usually get to interact with. Mary Armstrong, who is one of the best hidden actresses here in town. Hmm. And I mean hidden is that she really deserves to be in huge roles and huge projects. I don't feel she gets the love she deserves. Hmm. Uh, Brent McIntosh was 
freaking amazing. I love working with people. I got to meet so many actors I've never interacted with. And uh, yeah, any, any opportunity to be in front of a camera, and it's not from an egotistical point of view, I just feel alive. I'll take it. Mm -hmm. So if it's a commercial for, you know, a pet stain remover or, you know, some kind of dental implant or, you know, at a hemorrhoids commercial, yeah, sure. Put me in front of a camera. I'll do it. Interesting. Now, do you have a sense of where that comes from? Like you have memories of being a a child or something where that appealed to you? Or I know you say it's not egotistical, which is for sure. I believe that. But do you know where it comes from to be? Because what is it? Is it that people are seeing you or it's a chance maybe just to express yourself? It's the ability to express myself, but also I come from a family of musicians. Since I was four, Mm. I studied piano and you don't have an option. You are placed on a stage, whether you're at home or in music school, the way I was trained, and you just have to perform. Mm. And eventually, because of the different coping techniques, you kind of start enjoying that spotlight i don't know mm. uh, it, and i guess you know how some people are addicted to extreme sports or you know jumping out of an airplane or sure. motocross or whatever i feel there's some of that because oh. there, there's uh, some discomfort some hormones that are being released that are telling you danger danger if you mess up you're really going to make a fool of yourself <laughs> but you feed off that and i think mm. that's one of the reasons why I enjoy being on the spot because those nerves are delicious and you got to learn how to use them uh, for your advantage. But I feel you start craving that experience. So that's what it is for me. Interesting. No, that's, that's cool, man. You, so you were raised uh, by a family of, of artists, performers, and, and it just, I guess it's in your blood in some sense. Yeah. And I, those neural pathways are, are there. And whenever I get them activated, it's great. So you said um, you said you were born in the Ukraine and before the fall of the Soviet Union. Yep, uh, 1980 in Kiev, Ukraine. In 1986, on April 27th, uh, Chernobyl happened, <laughs> and it started the journey for my family to try to get out of Ukraine. Hmm. And we eventually had the opportunity to do a cultural exchange, and we ended up in Mexico, <laughs> of all places. Oh wow which became home for many years. So we moved out of the Ukraine in 1989, right before the USSR starting falling apart, Hmm. right before the wall of Berlin fell down. And then once the USSR dissolved and before Ukraine got solidified as a country, we stayed as refugees in Mexico, eventually became citizens. And in 2001, I went to Los Angeles, to stay with family members and study computer science. Hmm. And there I had the opportunity to interact a little bit with the world of television, uh, the campus where I was studying, a couple of baseball fields and other places were used by Spin City 24 and other places. And I got the opportunity to, you know, look how things were done. And I just said, holy, wow, I want to be part of this. And in 2003, I moved to Canada, to Ledbridge, hmm. and I lived there happily for a number of years. But the more acting opportunities I had in Calgary, the more I had to drive. Hmm. 
my my partner's family is here in Calgary, so we eventually made the move in 2016. Okay. And I've been actually learning from Calgary till today because now that I've been driving a lot, I'm like, okay, now finally I know where <laughs> part of the city is and what's happening. But it took me <laughs> literally three years to get to that point. Well, that's a hell of a journey, man. Do you, uh, I guess, do you feel lucky to have, to have had the experiences you had? Like, I guess when, I guess Chernobyl and then the fall of the Berlin wall and all that stuff and the fall of the, the Soviet union and all that stuff. Did that, were you old enough at the time to really understand what was going on there? Or was it just, uh, you know, part of the furniture, so to speak? No, I understood exactly what's happening. The thing is when you're, you know, when you're nine years old and you have to move to a country where everything is different. Mm. Um, it, you, and when your parents approach you and actually ask, are you okay with this? Like my parents were super cool and, and open. They didn't make the decision without including me hmm. and knowing, Hey, I have to say goodbye to my parents or grandparents to my friends. Um, it was a tough moment Yeah, and everything else that happened in the context of history. I feel blessed that I'm part of it. I also feel that my experience is actually tiny and insignificant compared <laughs> to the sea of other experiences. Sure. I had the opportunity to interact with people from all around the world, from all walks of life. And I had the opportunity while working in language to interact with newcomers from Nepal and Bhutan and Afghanistan. And that humbled me down because I thought, oh man, I have a world-like experience. And then when I spoke with a few of the people I had the opportunity to interact with, I understood, yeah, it's a speck of what people's experiences really are like. Mm. They have so much more to learn um, that, yeah, I'm super fortunate for being here, but it it's not fortune, I, to be honest. Mm. It's a lot of hard work and sacrifice from my parents. Right. And my grandparents to actually, you know, say, I'm going to move my entire life to a completely different continent. It's a shot in the dark, but it's going to be better than uh, radiation infused uh, land, which uh, my heart bleeds for the Ukraine, but I don't know the Ukraine that it's there today. I mm. speak Ukraine very poorly. I grew up speaking Russian and the culture, the language, the place, it's so different from when I lived there back when it was the USSR, that and when everybody asks me, where are you from? I say, well, I'm from Soviet Ukraine to specify that that's the Ukraine I'm familiar with. Hmm. But nowadays I'm Canadian. I've lived most of my life in Canada and I identify my views and my aspirations as a Canadian. Interesting. Yeah. Well, that's, you know, because there's, there's a certain amount of I guess, I guess what I'm trying to say here is do you, when, yeah, you identify, do you identify as a multicultural, multinational person or you really feel you, you've made your home in Canada and you, and you identify as Canadian? The beauty of being Canadian is that you can be definitely multicultural, multi, multifaceted and yet feel that you're Canadian. Because I feel after living in Canada for so many years and having my interests invested in the land, the people, the society, yeah, I'm I'm as Canadian as you can get, regardless of where, where I was born in Canada or not. Because all of my efforts, all of my efforts as an artist, 
as mm. a person, as a tax tax contributing and voting citizen, <laughs> are geared towards Canadian well-being. Start from where you are, so Calgary to province to country, because I think it is my duty to pay it back to some place, land, ideal that was welcoming enough to say, hey, this is your home now. Right. You know, admittedly, and I find that I find that a fascinating story. I've talked to a few people that have, uh, have immigrated to Canada and made a better life for themselves. And there's a lot of conversation going on in, in, about Canada's founding and about its history being essentially, you know, genocidal. It was a colonial country, but... I guess we have to acknowledge that, obviously. We saw what we saw with the residential schools and, and everything that came out this summer, and there is that that has to be reckoned with. But I guess if if there is anything redeeming about Canada is that it is a land where people like you or, or I have some friends who came here from South America escaping you know, authoritarian socialism, essentially, that this is a place where people can come and make a better, at least have an opportunity at a better life. Absolutely, and you cannot really ignore the history of any country. You you tell me what country doesn't have a complicated past and present, mm. right? And um, the fact that Canada is acknowledging the difficult history that it has, it's actually very good because I think it allows everybody to realize that there are issues that need to be addressed and discussed and there needs to be a conscious effort towards making our country, our cities, our communities better than they are because they can be better. Um, the, the other beautiful thing is I think people have a, a bleeding heart for a particular place. Mm. I am detached from the Ukraine I used to know because that place doesn't exist anymore. Mm. So I had to place my bleeding heart, my aspirations and dreams into a more tangible place that exists. You want to live in the present, you don't want to live in the past, right? That's why I'm so passionate about Canada and Canadians' well-being and my role within this society because this is, to me, this is a place that my heart and my mind bleeds for mm. and I'm, I'm going to do everything I can to make our communities better and happier, even within my tiny role, hopefully as an artist, but also as a tax-contributing citizen. Mm -hmm. Sure, sure. Do you have aspirations, Jin, like beyond the movie world, beyond the film sets and all that stuff? Do you do you like say you're gonna run for office, but are there things other other things you have your your sights set on as life goes on? You're very perceptive. I used to. Mm. I used to want to um use a little bit of my acting to gain enough uh, I guess, awareness within people that my particular voice would be heard. Mm. But with the shift of how media is perceived nowadays, how uh, there is a significant issue where, um, you know, entertainment and art is taking in a different topic and it's used as a platform to say something mm. rather than what it is designed for. And by the way, art definitely has a place for saying something. That's the whole point of art is you're using a different technique to communicate something that's important to the artist. Mm. But I feel my aspirations for wanting to, uh, you know, do something for my community goes to a smaller place where I feel I have so little understanding and knowledge of what other people need and what other people want 
and I have so little leeway in inspiring people with just words that I feel I want to instead share my emotions, mm. share my thoughts as an artist and let people take whatever they want from it. Because before when I wanted to do a little bit more of a political role in the future, um, I felt I had something important to say, and I'm not saying I don't have important things to say, but I feel there's more value out of letting people take the words they want to instead of specifically creating something for people. And at the end of the day, regardless of how amazing you are, even if you're Mayor Nenshi, at a certain point, you'll have to give a dirty blow here and there. <laughs> and I don't want to compromise the kind of person I am to do something that is important. Like there's the, the means justifies the end works in the movie world, but I feel in the practical world, the means do not justify the end. Hmm. And, yeah. I'm, and I'm a, a, a passive pessimist. So <laughs> I, I have the bleakest perception of how things are going to work. Sure. But I honestly feel that, yeah, in, in today's world where you have such a responsibility with every word that you say and how you say it, yeah, it's important to just tell people, hey, this is my humble opinion that is possibly wrong due to my limited context. But this is the way I feel and I think today. <laughs> and I hope it doesn't reflect much more than today. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. That's fascinating stuff, man. Like that's something I've had to grapple with on this podcast is like, well, I started this show because I thought maybe I had something to say. And then the more I realized that I was like, well, all you, I just have my own thoughts and other people have their thoughts and there may be conflict, but it's not really up to me or up to them to pass the moral judgment on what's right or wrong or, or how things should be done. So and you're absolutely right. It's like, if you get into that game, then you are going to compromise yourself because in the interest of being right all the time, you're going to have to do some things that are probably wrong. So what you're talking about and what I'm trying to do on the show is just be myself, be yourself, and, and people can take from that whatever is useful. And hopefully it's at least entertaining for them and it's able to either provide them interesting ideas or distract them from you know a boring commute or <laughs> right or provide a moment of distraction from a stressful day right right that shouldn't be lost either is like yeah we're trying to give some i mean maybe that's getting lost too is like yeah giving something giving what you can to, to other people might might be the only way forward absolutely because uh, we're all used to taking a little bit and asking for stuff mm -hmm. but when you have a forum like this one and i i applaud you for doing this uh, especially because it's just auditory i feel it it creates a connection with with the people at the other end of the microphone i used to listen to a lot of spoken radio back in la mm. <laughs> there used to be people that used to say very open honest things where others, other people wouldn't be afraid to do so. Mm. Um, even, you know, Howard Stern, who, you know, had good moments, had bad moments, but it was interesting to listen to. And it, you start questioning certain things about, okay, I, I thought this was the case. Maybe it's not. I'm going to research, right? So in this type of platform, I mean, a thing or two you mentioned or a thing or two I mentioned, eventually it's going to get somebody to say, hey, this doesn't go exactly with my notion of things. Let me research. And maybe it uh, gives an opportunity for learning. Uh, and maybe they can say, hey, 
Pat, I know in, in, in that particular podcast, you said X, Y, and guess what? I found out it's not the case. <laughs> or, hey, thank you so much for inspiring me to go and try to pursue X, Y, and Z because there were some passionate people that spoke about it and I felt it really is akin to my heart, right? So, No, that's totally it. I mean, that, I guess, like, like with acting or like with podcasting, that's really all you could ever hope to do is inspire someone to to look a little deeper into their, into themselves. And, and hopefully find something they like. <laughs> hopefully. Because everybody has something to like about themselves, even though sometimes it's not easy to see. That's, that's for sure. And I would say too, if you look and you don't like what you're seeing, then I would just keep talking and keep communicating, maybe not out into the world, but whether it's journaling or, or doing an audio podcast, whatever, acting, you know, like, it, you are in there, but you, you need, it takes a lot of work to become a self, you know, <laughs> to be a person. Yeah. And, and when we talked about what I use for my expression of the inside towards the outside, everybody has access to a pen. Everybody has access to a mirror or to a shower to sing, <laughs> whatever brings that insight to the outside world. I honestly feel, hmm. even if you're not an artist, that brings a moment of a relief from whatever might need to be released. Mm -hmm. And hopefully, uh, you know, some people do that through cooking because, sure. um, you know, food is one of the most amazing and unusual artistic expressions out there. Mm -hmm. And uh, I've discovered so many amazing cooks um, once the restaurants reopened. I'm just blown away by stuff I, I need to try. And I tried to <laughs> note it out, but now I understand the value of trying different people's recipes and artistry when it comes to food. I'm like anybody that has an opportunity within their budget to research a particular place, go out there and mm. try something new, please do. Because not only are businesses needed, but you're missing out. <laughs> <laughs> totally. And that's a big, that's an interesting one, right? Like what we do, people watch and listen but you're cooking something someone's going to put that inside themselves and, and nourish themselves hopefully with it and that's actually a huge commitment as a creator yeah man and uh, i mean couldn't be more stressful like the time is really ticking on somebody's like you come in you order and the order comes out you as a chef has so less time to create something magical instead of you and I that can plan something for years, <laughs> yeah. then actually do it. And, you know, from conception to what you see on screen, it probably took four years for her for Heretic to come out. Mm -hmm. Let's see if somebody's going to wait four years for their meal to come out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't think so. Maybe maybe the tr as the restaurants get more and more trendy, that might be a thing, long wait times, but I, I don't think so. Yeah, I don't think so either, man. Well, Jen, this was, uh, I really appreciate your time, man. It was good to connect with you. I know we've, we've kind of always kind of been two ships passing in the night, but, uh, you're a hell of an interesting character. So it was good to spend some time with you. You're amazing, man. I really appreciate this opportunity. Next time I hope to interview you, maybe learn a little bit about why you're passionate about creating amazing images, man. Hey, that's, that works for me. I'm sure we'll, we'll talk again. Um, any, uh, is your film heretic? Is that out for the public to look at? Is that stuff? Is that something you want people to see? Definitely not yet. I'm, okay. I wasn't going to do this, but people are insisting that they put it in festivals. So I really want to do a, a solid six month festival run to actually have more exposure for the people that donated their time and effort to creating 
a very cool piece that I'm proud of. And then I'm going to release it to the public. That being said, there is a short film that I'm releasing to the public, hopefully in September. And it's my first short. Okay. It's called Solitude. Um, and I'm proudly presenting it as the film that was rejected by a hundred festivals. Woo. That's, I know. That's quite an accomplishment. I know. A I actually did a hundred. I oh, submitted God. to a hundred festivals and not one took the bite Jesus. and I'm super proud of solitude and I'm excited to share it with everybody else because, uh, Hey, you know, the people collect laurels and posters accepted into this one that I just <laughs> want to create one laurel that says rejected by a hundred <laughs> festivals. It's so good. Oh, no. Nobody took the guts to put it in their programming. I, I love that. The, I love that you, you still don't have enough sense to not show that to people. It's like, no, I made it. I don't care. It's gotta be seen. The thing is, I the the stuff I do is for myself. Uh-huh. I don't care if other people see it or not. But my responsibilities to those who participated is simple: show their work, showcase their amazing work. And not only did I have an amazing team on there um, in post production, uh, my very good friend Nikolai Villager, who is an amazing artist, he's going to be at the Calgary Expo. Um, he draws amazing comic books, so he created the poster, but he also created the soundtrack as a one. 16 minute soundtrack that is a soundscape and um you know soundtrack for the show and i th- it took him almost a year to compose it wow. and it's worth every minute like it's amazing and that's that was for solitude yes wow okay well i'm looking forward to seeing that um i was gonna ask one other thing here uh oh well i submitted a, a feature film that i did called driftwood to a, a festival and i i got in and nobody showed up i don't know i think maybe that's worse i don't know um this is the the rhetoric of if a tree falls in the forest and there's nobody around to hear it (laughs) but it still make a sound even nobody went to the movie theater specifically in that showing to see driftwood i am sure that there was a very loud very important sound the movie made well i i appreciate that and it, it actually it may have been a loud sound inside myself because that's what kicked off the journey. That's what introduced me to people like uh, like Jarvis, for instance. It was a it was more of a personal milestone than anything else. And congratulations for making it happen. A, a feature film, by the way, is one of those grueling feats that not everybody's committed to and lives through the process to want to do it again. <laughs> Very true. Very true. Well, hey, Jin, we're gonna we're gonna link up on a set sooner than later. I'm sure. I look forward to uh, seeing you in person. Looking forward to that, my friend. And I'm uh, hoping I will uh, interview you next time. I have a small uh, thing going on for reviewing movies where mm-hmm. I want to chat with people that are part of making movies, and I would love to have a small conversation with you about that. Very cool. And I also think that with give and take being just about ready, we, we may have another conversation in the near future about that, more specifically about that. So lots to lots to oh, say. Oh, I would love that. Absolutely. Okay, awesome. Well, Jin, thanks for your time, man. Like I say, we'll be talking, we'll be seeing each other soon. And uh, again, this was a great one. Looking forward to seeing you soon. Pat, it's been an honor. I really am looking forward to the next one. Have a fantastic one. Right on. You too, man. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the North Bank Media Podcast. 
If you enjoy this conversation, please subscribe on YouTube and give us a like. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please subscribe as well and leave a five-star review. Thank mm-hmm. you.